the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. Wrestling fans, and welcome to JJ, the JJ Dylan podcast. I am your co-host, JP John Paz, and with me, as always, is the star of the show, two-time Hall of Famer, the leader of the Four Horsemen, the second greatest manager of all time behind Bobby the Brain Heenan, and of course, he's a former WWF and WCW executive, JJ Dylan. JJ, how are you doing this fine evening? Great. And John, I was looking forward to this. I'm always excited anytime. I'm really starting to get in the groove with this thing. Yeah. And, I, and I'm absolutely. hoping I, I'm hoping our f- feedback from our listeners is uh, has been favorable that they're in, enjoying our conversations and coming up with some questions and suggestions and uh, and you know we uh, I think we got good chemistry with you and I and hopefully we're gonna with some help from the fans out there that are listening and tell their friends and say hey you know. J.J. Dillon's doing a podcast, and, uh, you know, it's it's different, it's good, and hopefully we'll build an audience. Absolutely, yes, for sure. And last week, we talked about the original Four Horsemen, Ole, Tully, yourself, Arn, and Flair. This week, we're going to delve a little bit deeper into the Four Horsemen as we kind of go into the next incarnation. And we kind of touched on a little bit last week with Lex Luger joining the group, the total package. What's kind of your history with... Lex, I mean, I, we talked a little bit about knowing him from Florida and how he kind of jumped over because of Bruiser Brody and the kind of the abuse that Brody gave him in the cage. But what was your history with the total package Lex Luger? Well, I actually, in, until he came in and, and joined, I had never met him. Uh, I did hear the stories of uh, his time in Florida. I, you know, I heard positive things that, uh, that he had a great physique, handsome guy good look but just uh you know lacked experience and at that point the original horsemen all were formed by guys that were already established in the top of their game so lex was the first um attempt at taking somebody that was not at at our level in terms of experience and time in the in the profession and so forth and you know, see if we couldn't fast track uh, his growth. So we took a shot at it. And, and I had heard the only, the only thing I knew was that uh, he had had an issue with uh, w- with Bruiser Brody. And uh, Frank is, uh, he was a really good friend and somebody that I miss. And tragically, we lost him way, way too early. And uh, I mean, I had actually wrestled against him. I'd been a in tag situations where I was his partner and, you know, he was one of the true legends and icons in our business that, like I say, we, we just lost him too early. And I, and I heard the story, uh, that in Florida, I, you know, Luger was coming along and was really green. And, and I, I never did ask Frank for an explanation of exactly the details of what happened. I just heard that uh, Luger was in a cage match with Frank. And of course you're restricted in a cage match in that, you know, if a guy's inexperienced like Luger was, you know, you can't roll out on the floor and get your second wind. And, um, it's, it just gives you one more piece to, to play with. And now he's inside a cage. And I, my understanding was that Frank got very impatient with him and I can understand that too, being around Lex and, 
Uh, I I have all kinds of patience. Frank didn't, and um, I guess took him to task. And he had to leave Florida, and so Eddie Graham, you know, knowing that Lex should have a great future in the business, notwithstanding the the incident with uh, with Frank. You know, he had the body, he had everything, and so he wanted to send him up to Charlotte to to, to Jimmy Crockett, and the horsemen were started, and he was going to be the first one coming in that wasn't already established in, in the industry, and that we we were going to now take a guy and let him get the rub with us to uh, accelerate his, uh, you know, his, his making his reputation in the Mid-Atlantic area. So that that's kind of the the uh, the foundation of of how Lex and I met and beginning of uh, that relationship. When you first met him, you said you know you could see Frank Bruiser Brody having an issue with him. What was the the vibe or what was the impression or what kind of you know energy did he give off? Well, I could see that he had the look. He had the size and he had the look. And it's funny how things stick in your mind. Uh, you know, that, that first impression. And when he did a couple of interviews, he very much, I think, watched some other interviews, wanted to mimic people like Bobby Heenan or, or to a degree myself in the business. And one thing that really stuck out with me was, and he wanted to use, uh, which uh, I rely always did uh, to a, a big degree of, um, of um, facial expressions, of pausing at certain points. And there were subtle things that I would do. I mean, I could be in the middle of a conversation and remove my glasses as I just did, even though people can't see it. And, and I was totally relaxed. I had done so many interviews all my career that I could pause and look away as if my mind was distracted somewhere thinking about the subject and kind of collecting my thoughts and I could uh, put my hand on my forehead and and rub my temples and uh, these were all the little things that 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 I did and I think and I'm not saying Lex was imitating me in particular but I think he wanted to try and and um, and mimic people in the business that were successful with interviews and had a great reputation. Just as an example, if I was going to, to uh, have a comment with you and I wanted to, I, I was building up to a certain point and when I wanted to make that point, I might pause for a second and I may look you, I may even lean forward and, you know, use my finger and point it right at you. Right. Just, just to, uh, just to emphasize that moment, that point, and Lex would be talking, and he would do do a, a motion like that, point his finger, but it would be in the middle of a sentence that would not be, that not right. would not would not yep. be timed to whatever he was talking about. In other words, he didn't build up to a to a point that he was trying to make. He he would just do the motion without understanding. Well. You know, the impact of the motion is timing it with whatever you're saying that you want to uh, have people in particular pay attention to. So that's the one thing about Lex that uh, <laughs> that sticks in my memory. A lot of people said first impression of him because he is so big and he is not really cocky, so to speak, but he's very self-confident. They always said when he walks into a room that, you know, you could tell he was full of himself or you could tell he's really high on himself. Is that the kind of the impression you got when you first met him? That, wow, this guy is, you know, a super confident guy here. And, you know, I don't, I, I, over my career, I've, I've probably met, I don't want to say, that's a general statement, say I've met anybody and everyone that was, uh, uh, involved or a player in our business and though you know starting as a teenager back when uh you know with uh, buddy rogers and uh, the big old bob orton and uh and, and and as a manager bobby davis you know i talk about great managers and i certainly give kudos to bobby the brain heenan 
But Bobby Davis, who was Buddy Rogers' manager back when I first started watching, and it was a black and white television, and they were on every Thursday night for an hour and a half. Bobby Davis was, he was tall. He was very lean, even to the point of being skinny. And back then he had a, I don't know if people would remember Elvis Presley with the, uh, with the ducktail, the way he combed his hair back, you know, and long in the back and, and almost to a point there would be a line down the back of his head. And he just, he, because of his height and the, the way he combed his hair, and I don't know if he ever was told that, but just you looked at him and before he ever opened his mouth and said anything, he garnered a lot of heat to the point that <laughs> you'd think, you know, hmm. I'd like to take and slap this guy alongside of his head. And that's a, a, a tremendous uh, character trait to have if you're going to be a... a uh, a villainous character in our business, and 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 he was, <laughs> he was, he was very very good. But when Lex came along, you know that was much later, and the only thing I heard was that Jimmy Crockett had told me, because we didn't talk. I mean, back and forth with promoters in other areas at that point. It was before the internet and before uh, cable television, and. So Eddie uh, or Jimmy Crockett came to me and he said, Eddie has uh, this guy that's broke in in Florida. Um, he's got a great physique, though he is really green. And unfortunately, they built up, you know, accelerated a program where he was against uh, Frank, Frank Goodish, Bruiser Brody, and it was in a cage match. And, and again, Brody was somebody who... Uh, didn't have a lot of patience <laughs> and you know he just I, I wish I was there I would really fully understand it but knowing Frank no, knowing uh, you know knowing the players I, I, I almost couldn't see what was happening without without being there and Brody just lost it and whether he got frustrated because Luger did some things that that an experienced guy wouldn't do, because a lot of times you know the, a guy like Frank would be he would be leading the match, and if a guy like Luger did something um, impromptu that didn't fit with the story that Brody was trying to sell, uh, that could be very frustrating because a guy like Brody would say, Oh God, you know, now I got to start all over. And of course, Luger had no idea what was going on. And I get Brody just <laughs> Brody lost his patience. It didn't last too long. And he started, uh, you know, I'm not saying that he, he, uh, he took liberties and deliberately tried to hurt another guy, but he just, you know, you could take somebody like that that's inexperienced and slap them around just out of frustration, not making it right. But, you know, a guy like Frank that was a top guy in the business and and he's looking at a guy like Luger that had a great physique and, and was was being given the opportunity to be in the ring with uh, with Brody, which was was going to immediately put him at a at a much higher level in the ring than his experience would indicate that he should be. And just, you know, and I, I, I can't think of other examples, but I've seen things like that happen. And it got so bad that uh, Brody manhandled Luger and Luger couldn't roll out of the ring because it was a cage match. And finally, he, he, Luger got so frustrated that he actually got up to the top turnbuckle, climbed over the, the, uh, the top, went down the cage, and went back to the dressing room, grabbed his clothes, never even changed, hmm. and, was, and was gone. <laughs> and and uh, boy, you know, I, I almost like could be a fly on the wall and see that happening, knowing Goodish and knowing and knowing Luger. But, and then, of course, in January and February of '87, basically the beginning of '87, he becomes a new member of you know the NWA and makes 
a quite an appearance because he immediately becomes not a member of the Four Horsemen, but an interesting little caveat, an interesting little twist. He becomes an associate member of the group, but he expressed desire to join the group. So, and and like immediately and initially, he's already kind of establishing himself that he's a threat, so to speak. But more to Oli, like it's almost like, wow, what's there's some tension here? Maybe Oli's leaving. Maybe Luger's a new member. How did that kind of all? get set up because it's interesting the associate angle and not actually a member of the horseman so. yeah because it was like a, a uh it was a work in progress and one of the things and i re I've re it's on tape somewhere and i recently looked at it was a battle royal and in the battle royal luger was like you know considered either on the verge of becoming a full-time member but he was strongly associated with the horseman and in the uh, in the battle royal, the horsemen, you know, would would work with each other and eliminate the the top threats in the battle royal until it got down to Luger and I'm, I don't I know it was Tully and I think Oli I don't I don't remember who but it was like as a uh, kind of gesture to me someone who if, if like the las vegas odds would have said that when the whole thing started i had the least chance of winning the thing but i was mm -hmm. in it because i'm in the ring with my guys and and little by little they they uh eliminated the greater threats and when it got down to it it was myself luger and i don't know if it was tully and arn or Oli. i don't remember but it might have been just us. And so they kind of looked at each other and just nodded, looked at me, and, and they kind of like a, a, a mental communication was, hey, JJ's our manager. He, 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 he's in the, he was in this thing just more to, uh, uh, to help orchestrate us and, and to be watching our backs. And I don't think he ever really thought about the possibility of him winning the thing. And now it's down to us with Luger. And you know what? We'd, we'd like to do a little surprise for J.J. and ha have him win this thing. First ever in his career. So one by one, the guys eliminate themselves over. And I'm looking and it's like, what are you guys doing? And they're all kind of looking away, not making eye contact. And it got left with Luger and I. He, Luger was the only one left. And so the guys on the outside are kind of looking up at Luger saying, you know, what are you waiting for? Kind of without verbalizing that initially. And they're standing there looking at Luger and Luger is, you know, he, he's all into intensive competition and the thought of him eliminating himself to, to give me the win was furthest from his, uh, thought process at that point well my other guys had done that and eliminated themselves they're on the outside and it's just luger and i and um i think Arn had a nickname for uh uh had a nickname <laughs> for luger that was Arn had nicknames for everybody and and hmm. uh and i'm trying to think what it was but it was it was something that was like mm. anyway he's and Luger and, and they're on the outside and Orange looking up at Luger and said, you know, what are you doing? Eggplant. That's what he called him. Eggplant. <laughs> he <laughs> said, Hey, eggplant, what are you doing? You know, as if to say, you could see what we were doing and get with the program. What are you doing? Still standing in there. And Luger is like trying to process it. And he's in mentally ready to lock up with me. And, you know, Odds were that he was probably got a very good shot at eliminating me and winning the thing. And the other guys on the outside are standing there with their arms folded. And it was like, uh, hey, you know, eggplant, what are you, you know, what are you, what are you waiting for? And um, I'm trying to think how it ended. I don't know if Luger eliminated me or, um, but that, that created, it was one of the pieces of a puzzle that, the fans, if they're watching over an extended period of time, realize that Luger's days would eventually be numbered as a horseman because he was like 
the you know the he he was the spoke that didn't fit right with the wheel. Yeah, and that was actually that's actually the towards the end of Luger's run the horseman. That's the bunkhouse stampede match. Yep, and you think you're going to win. And Luger ends up taking it. Luger ends up winning and eliminating you, and the horsemen are pissed at him. And then eventually, yeah. And and it, and it wasn't like it, it. It wasn't like the plan to do that. It just was a spontaneous thing that we all, the guys, the horsemen, all worked together to eliminate everybody. And it was down to just myself and the horsemen. And so the horsemen were kind of looking at each other, nodding with a little grin, and you know. One of them eliminates himself, the other eliminates himself, the other one eliminates themselves. And I'm looking like, what are you guys doing? And that I would have thought I would have been the one to eliminate myself so that one of them, uh, which would be much more deserving than it was for me. And Luger's standing there with that look about, oh, you expect me to eliminate myself when it's me and him? And sometimes you can get more of a message with just a look and just letting the people digest what they're seeing. And somebody doesn't have to explain it. It's not like a commentator. It's the, the, what's, what's unfolding speaks for itself. And it's like, I'm still in there. And before I could eliminate myself, the other guys eliminated themselves. And as a surprise to me, they wanted the one guy who nobody figured could possibly win the thing, win the thing. And they wanted to do it for me because they, you know, they held me in high regard. And the only one that uh, was Luger. And, of course, when Luger eliminated me, then, oh boy, that was, that, you know, that was like, you know, the un- unforgivable sin. And that planted the, planted the seed. And eventually it, it you know, created an instant opponent on the other side uh, against us. Yeah. As soon as anybody kind of goes after Flair's title or, or says they want the title, that's when the horsemen jump in and that's creates the, you know, the friction and the tension and the controversy for sure. But when Luger first kind of joins the group, it is interesting that he's just an associate, but also interesting that Ole is still there, but they keep teasing you know, they leave him out of stuff. He ends up costing Arn and himself the title at Starcade 86. So even leading into Luger coming in, they keep kind of teasing tension with Ole. Was the plan always to slowly but surely get Ole out? You just had to figure out who you're going to put in? Well, we had such a great run with the original Horseman, which included Ole. And in true to life, it was a time when... Uh, Ole's son was a uh, was a senior in high school, and I think he was wrestling and playing football. And he was, I think, the quarterback. And so Friday nights were the for the were the home games for most of high school football. And so uh, Ole wanted the time. He wanted you know, which he was certainly entitled to it. And I don't think anybody ever. Uh, ever raised the idea that, you know, you mean you're choosing your own son against being with a horseman? You know, we cared enough about each other legitimately on a personal level that here was a guy, Ole, this is a once in a, his son is only going to be a senior that one time and quarterback on the football team. And so Ole uh, is going to travel to all the road games and whatever, and which meant he, you know, and missed some shots. And we were all, hey, no problem. So it was a real life situation that created a scenario for Luger to come in where, where Ole was. And he wanted to watch his son, Bryant, and obviously do sports and things like that. And he wanted to be a father, which is good, but doesn't kind of align up with the horsemen. And I love that promo where Tully says to Ole, um, go play or go hang out with your snot nosed kid or something. And only snaps on him. Yeah. Just like the perfect way to kind of uh, break up the group. Yeah. And it was totally in character for Tully to, to say something like that. And you can understand Oli's character and having Tully 
you know, we used to laugh and smile when Tully would say things to other people because he was one of us. But when he when he fired on on Ole, uh, and Ole just you know reaction slapped him, and we had to separate him. It was and if I remember right, this happened out of an interview, and the confrontation between the two of them came right at the end of as they were about to go off the air, and they went off of the set, and they're over there, and there's chairs and stuff and there's a curtains and it, in other words it was people looking and say well wait a minute we're <laughs> they never show off the set right next to it this is hey this is something really has happened here and that in 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 heightened the impact of 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 what happened and so we it ended up taking a real life situation and, and what it did too was because Oli Oli was a main eventer whether he was a heel baby face it didn't matter so that created the, the 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 situation where now Ole was on the other side, you know, teaming with uh, with with Sting and and with the the Road Warriors and whatever. And so that gave that whole thing a whole fresh. It was like we were starting all over, and red hot with uh, with Ole. And it was so cool, just the way it was done. You're right; it was such realism. You it know, was you something. Think about it, man. The way it was done, it was something that. A lot of times, the fans, if, if they watch every week, they can pick up on things and and kind of anticipate that something is about to happen. And there's, you know, you don't, you you, you lose that surprise. You get a, you have the surprise factor with a lot of your fans, but there's a lot of your fan base that that see the uh, uh, the, the small things that aha, you know. I'm I'm not surprised I I could see this coming. So the thing with with uh, Ole, uh, they didn't see that one coming, and that gave it more impact. And uh, as I think back on that time, and do you think Luger was the right guy to replace him? Because in March of '87, Ole is officially out, and Luger is officially in. No more an associate member. He's joining the group. You think he was the right guy to replace Ole? Well, it was like. Again, going back to he was in Florida, uh, Luger was, and had that situation with Frank Goodish in a cage match. And Goodish, like, wiped up the floor with him uh, out of frustration because Luger was totally inexperienced and, and just, <laughs> you know, maybe uh, wasn't humble when he should have been with somebody like uh, Brody. And so he climbed out of the cage and eliminated himself, packed his bags and left. So now Eddie calls Jimmy Crockett, like I said, and says, oh, I have this guy, and boy, this thing happened, and it's a situation that I, that I can't fix or smooth over. You know, um, when something like this happens, you know, Luger's got to go. And so uh, he's, he's, a, he's a, a young talent. He's got some experience, but he's still basically inexperienced and green, but he's got an incredible body. And, you know, he, he wanted them to go somewhere where they would understand the situation, which Eddie had a good relationship with Jimmy Crockett. And so that was a logical place for him to go. And then it was also logical for him because we, we hadn't had a, uh, a revolving door of somebody coming into the, into the horseman and Luger was going to be the first one. So that was, that was a pretty big deal in and of itself. And, uh, you know, the way it played out, it was, it was, it really worked. And immediately Luger went from, you know, being in Florida and coming into the Carolinas and immediately being a major player. It's kind of rare that a guy can kind of just come from a different territory and immediately get put in a group like that and immediately become, like you said, a major player or a main eventer just by the rub, just by being with those guys, just by being associated with those guys. You think that really benefited Luger at that point? Like we're saying, he's so green, but he's got such a great look. You think that was like the perfect thing that he really needed at that point? Guys like Arn and Tully and Flair teaching him the ropes? Yeah, as I look back, it was a, it was a, you know, and I don't know if Luger realized it at the time, but it was an incredible opportunity for him to come in green as grass and be able to have Tully and Arn uh, and, and William and myself be able to be able to groom him 
and and also uh, not allow him to be exposed as being really inexperienced. These these guys were the best in the industry, period. Not only in the Carolinas, but you know, you, to, to me, Tully and Arn, uh, and I'm a bit prejudiced, I guess, but to me, they're greatest. They were the greatest tag team that I ever saw, and they also as individuals, uh, and Arn just became a great great interview because his his interviews were different um and as a performer in the ring he was not the biggest but he just had it together and especially when he was teamed with tully um it just you know when you look back at 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 different crossroads in the business and being in the carolinas at that time and uh i remember when uh uh, Arn was had been down in Pensacola, which is where he's from, and needed to go and get exposure, and that's how he ended up in the Carolinas. And you know, we could see immediately that this guy's, you know, he's destined to be one of the all-time greats, which he which he was. And the end, he's a he's a great guy, not only a great performer in the business. But a great human being, and and one of my closest friends in the business. He's I, I I joke with him that he he is like the brother that I never had. That's how close we are. That is great, and I think any time that you can be associated with Arn and Tully is just unbelievable. And for Luger to be that green and that you know in shape and that great looking, but and the a flip side not be that great in the ring as of yet and really just not be as well developed, just the perfect compliment. Do you think that the chemistry at all was altered as far as being a horseman when you take out Ole and you put in Luger, or do you think everything was just kind of remain the same? Well, you have something and promoters tend to take something that's successful like the horseman and take that original group and they would ride <laughs> ride it mm-hmm. like riding a horse until the horse falls and can't get up. He, they, they would, you know, they, they'd get him up and he'd run one more time and then finally he just can't get up anymore. And that, that's, that's kind of how it was. The horseman thing was so hot and so successful. And we just, we had such great success that, uh, and, and then it's like with that original group, uh, yeah, I think it's healthy for the group to have a change and having Oli move out with Luger coming available. It really was, uh, when Eddie Graham called Jimmy and Jimmy talked to me and said, you know, this, this guy's got a hell of a body. He's green. And you guys haven't, haven't been in a situation where you had one of your group, your, all you guys are all established. You're all top names in the business. And so now. Here's a guy that uh, to get the maximum out of him because he's certainly got the look and everything. You guys are are the best in the business and are going to be able to camouflage his lack of experience and and be able to protect him from exposing himself. I love that you, know, you camouflage. You you protect him. Do you think adding him to the group and taking out? Do you think that it hurt the momentum at all? Because the horsemen were so over and they're so huge. Do you think it hurt the momentum at all? I don't actually. I actually think I don't, it I don't think so almost. And I almost think, which is crazy to say, he almost enhanced them for a little bit. Yeah, and and sometimes a change like that. I mean, we we were over so big. And had such a great run. And the question, well, if you hadn't done the thing with Luger and the original group just stayed together, well, you know, what would you guys have, you've been at the top of the, of the, the pecking order, what, for another year, two years, three years, who knows? I mean, we, we just had a, a chemistry with us and we generally enjoyed each other's company. And because a lot of times when you have like four guys like that and and I was the fifth guy, but sometimes on an interview, um, and it might be Tully, it might be Arn, it might be me that would, and a lot of times we wouldn't discuss ahead of time, uh, a plan because we were all, we all knew 
who at that particular, who was our, who was, a, it was always Dusty and somebody, you know, whether it was Dusty and Valiant and, and Dusty and the Road Warriors were our main competition across from the ring. So we always had to, to, to keep that, keep that interest there, not, not let that go. So with interviews, nobody, nobody, nobody had to come say to us, well, no, you guys need to talk about that. No, <laughs> I'm not saying that we would have been insulted if they tried to do that, but they just knew enough not to, that, that we, they didn't see where we had gone out there and all of a sudden, geez, I don't boy, that interview, uh, you know, could have been better. You know, we, we, we just were so, we were so good as competitors in the ring, bell to bell and interview, interview wise as a group, you know, there was some times where we all could say something which really wasn't all that often or without talking about it ahead of time, just, you know, I might, ha I might have something, something with the scenario where I'd say, Hey, let me start this. And sometimes I'd start and get on a roll and end up taking a whole interview. And another time it might be Arn, Arn say, hey, let me, let me take this. Let me start this one. And Arn might end up taking the whole thing, but, the other part that contributed to the success was that we didn't just stand there like robots. That that as Arn was talking, uh, I would be. It's it's kind of like managing. I would be in the corner managing somebody, and I didn't want to be jumping. My I didn't want to be jumping up and down and distracting from the match. And sometimes if 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 you're uh, a, and I've seen this happen where somebody is a manager and they, they didn't wrestle like I did or, or wasn't part of a scenario like that. And, you know, business gets a little slow and all of a sudden the guy's thinking, well, boy, if they decide they, they need to cut back a little bit, man, I'm, I'm going to be the top of the, the chopping list. So I need to go out there and be animated, be act, do something just to kind of let the promoter know that, uh, Hey, you know, I'm important. You need you need to keep me good, and a lot of guys thought that way. I never did because that, that's that's you say. Well, it's your ego. Nah. Well, maybe to a degree, but I knew what I was capable of doing. And if I stopped being a manager and went back to being a competitor with the tights on every night, I can handle that too. It just gave me a an added dimension to being the manager to when I did put on the tights and wrestle, and I learned from Bobby Heenan, the greatest manager of all. And he told me one time, he, he, uh, and I, one night in Houston, I had, I went out and I hadn't, hadn't wrestled there and I went out and I tried to incorporate all the skills that my timing wasn't exactly sharp, but it, but all the skills. And I remember Paul Bosch, I'm thinking, you know, he's going to be really happy. And when he, cause they used to come by and pay after in Houston. And when he came in, I could just see by the look on his face. And then at that point it dawned on me. Oh God. You know, you, you didn't stop and think about what you were doing. You went out there and you wanted to perform for the, not for that audience that had an expectation of you, but for the guys in the back, some of whom hadn't seen you wrestle for six months or nine months or a year, and you wanted to remind them that uh, that you were a main event man in most of the territories that you ever appeared in. So I'm out there working for them, not for that audience that doesn't know about my whole reputation, because I'm just like new to that territory. And... Paul reinforced that, and you know I remember apologizing to Paul and said, "Paul, I, I, I just, it'll never happen again." And and that's when I realized that there's a skill to, yes, being on top and being able to structure a match and your timing. But as a manager, that audience looks at you as somebody who. You, you talk a good game like you're a big deal and you're going to be out there and, I, you know, I'm going to be so great. But when you get out there, you want to show them that 
that by your performance, you're far from as great as you would like to think you are. Mm. And then that lives up to their expectations of wanting to see you fumble and fall and, and, and get your butt kicked. So it, it, uh, it just was a, a, a great learning experience. And, um, I, you know, I had such a great career being around people like Bobby Heenan that, uh, you know, was, uh, somebody that I could look up to and, because Bobby wrestled too. And I heard Nick Bockwinkle. I had a conversation with Nick Bockwinkle one time, and we were talking about Bobby. And he said that when Bockwinkle and Stevens had an incredible run in California for like a couple of years, and then went to Minneapolis, and Bobby Heenan was their manager. And he said, if one of us legitimately got hurt, meaning he or Stevens, that they would, you know, would maybe be out for five days or a week. He said, Bobby Heenan could go in, put the tights on and work the match and be as good. And he went so far as to say, if not better than either he or Stevens, Bobby had it all. He, he could work, he could perform, he could talk, he could manage. I mean, he, he, Bobby had it all. Bobby was so great. And, and of course, you guys do have it in common. He uh, managed Lex Luger at one point as well, which is kind of just a, just a cool little tie-in. <laughs> yeah. But as far as... That should be a big deal to Luger, not to Bob. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but as far as it's kind of going back to 87, with Luger, it is so interesting that it keeps the momentum going because this is, I think, so many people remember the full horseman when you think of war games and you think of that match... It's not only part of War Games. He's already gone months, months ago. He's already gone out of the Horseman kicked out. It's Arn, yourself, Flair, Tully, and Luger as the Horseman. So many people remember War Games. So that's why he's so associated with the Horseman, I think, because so many people remember War Games. And obviously the first War Games is Dusty and Nikita and Paul Ellering and the Road Warriors. But am I right on that? I think he's so associated with the Horseman because of those War Games matches. And, and what was, I think there were like, 11 or 12, they, they, I mean, they took it around, took it to ballparks and what have you, but they didn't. Yeah, the Great American Bash 87 yeah, tour. They, yep. they didn't beat it to death. They picked specific big markets and made it a big deal. And the first one was July 4th at the Omni in Atlanta. And it was two cages, two rings side to side with the, the two cages all around it and a cage on top. And uh, as they were ready for the finish, Animal got behind, came under me and scooped me up so that now I'm sitting on his shoulders and he's got my legs locked. And it's like, oh, oh, how do I get up here? I don't like the look of this. And then all of a sudden he's walking around with me and I look and see, uh, uh, oh, the guy that clotheslined me. Hawk. Uh, uh, Hawk. I yep. see Hawk climbing, you know, going between the cage to get up to the top turnbuckle. And his eyes are like this. And my eyes are like this. <laughs> like a, like <laughs> a His eyes were like baseballs. My eyes were like basketballs. And it's like, oh, man, I'm thinking, here's Hawk. And he's, he's crouched. And he's got that arm cocked. And he's going to launch. And animals got me, and I'm halfway across the ring. And I'm thinking, the thing's got a cage, so he's going to have to really, really come out. And the more I'm processing all this, I thought, this is not such a good idea for me. And as he's about to take off, I decided to, to come down. And, you know, as powerful as Animal was, uh, if, if you're up on the shoulders and don't want to be there and you, and you come down and make it difficult for him to manage your weight, which is what happened. And now I'm coming down head first to the center of the ring, more concerned with what would happen if I stayed up there and got clotheslined by Hawk coming off the top turnbuckle. And I'm coming down head first. And in that split second, I'm thinking I could break my neck and die on this spot. And so at the last second, I, I 
tucked my chin and turned my head and buried my shoulder. And I think I've, I've already probably shown you, which people at home can't, can't really see it, but that's, this is 30 years ago. And, uh, you know, I, I had a choice that night. I was, I was laying in the middle of the ring and you, you Ooh, yeah, 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 right there. You can see it. Good. And, uh, I don't have any, I don't have any pain or discomfort, but it, it was, it was a mess and went to the hospital that night and they said, well, it, you know, it, it's not broken. It's a severe dislocation. You probably would have been better off if you broke it. And he said, we have two choices. We could do surgery and we can smooth that out. So it'll be level or you can pass surgery and be in a sling and it'll be six weeks in a sling until that, that thing will, your shoulder muscles and all will adjust themselves to that change in structure. And I thought, I don't want a surgery if I don't have to. And I went back from Atlanta that night and went to the hospital in, uh, in, in Charlotte where I was living. And that's where the doctor said, well, you got two choices. We can put, we can take you into surgery and we can fix that. And if you don't want to do the surgery, you, you can uh, wear, wear a sling and, and let all the parts of that thing uh, kind of make the adjustment on their own. The problem is you're going to have that hump on the one side. And I wasn't somebody that uh, used to go down to the beach to <laughs> parade around. And the thought of having that hump on that side was uh, not that big a deal for me. And so I opted I didn't want to have the surgery if I didn't have to. And so 30 years later, I have that reminder is maybe my my badge of courage. I don't know. Yeah. Badge it was, it was, from it was the worst, worst injury that I ever had. And, and w- w- also what it did, because when I came down, I, you know, I was laying in the middle of the ring and Dusty – Dusty and I had a, uh, you know, he was the, the catalyst across the ring, but unbeknownst to virtually anybody other than our media families, Dusty and I were very, very close personally as friends. And, you know, I'd sneak over to his house at Christmas when he have a small circle of people there. And, and, uh, we were, we were personally very, very close and, didn't socialize, didn't go anywhere where people would ever see us together because, um, but that injury, then as the war games went around to other places, that was a big selling point about this is the most dangerous match in wrestling. Just look at me and the damage that I suffered at the very first war games in Atlanta. So that, that kind of like, wow, boy, this is, this is bad. All those big bodies flying around. And so that was the, that was the one plus side. It was good for business. Absolutely good for business. The blood, the injuries, it was definitely cool. Were you kind of just basically in that match to lose it, so to speak? Cause you don't obviously want Rick losing or maybe Arn or Tully and definitely not Luger cause you're trying to build them up. Were you just essentially in the match just to take the loss? As I remember, it started with two guys, which was always Arn, and I forget who from the other side. Usually and Dusty. Dusty. And then two minutes later, uh, we would supposedly flip a coin, but we always won the coin toss. So then one of the heels from our side would go in, and it was two on one against the babyface for two minutes. And they had a scoreboard clock up there, like a basketball scoreboard clock. And then people would be counting down. And there's one of the baby faces standing there and, uh, the, the referee's got that key and there's a padlock there and he, he won't, you know, come on, open it, open. No, I can't open it. And then finally, boom, and the buzzer would sound it up and he'd charge in and even the sides up again, two and two. So it was, uh, it was an interesting match to work and everybody that was in it were, were, Season performers that knew how to to do it, and of course the the heel got the always got the advantage at two minutes till the babyface came in and, and even the sides up. Then the next two minutes was uh, because we were alternating, and the heel would be back in, and the the heels would be one up, and and we'd get the advantage. And then I was the last one in, so the match couldn't end end until all uh, um, ten ten participants were in the ring. <laughs> 
So I was the last one to go, and I think they called it the match beyond. Now begins. In other words, up to that point, which was almost 20 minutes into it, it was a war and uh, blood and, and whatever, but the match couldn't end until the last guy from each team was in, and I was the last guy. And uh, <laughs> I was, the, I was the, the sacrificial lamb in more ways than one. But it, it, and the fact that I got hurt, as we took the match around, and they didn't beat it to death. They took it to major stadiums and things, but it drew huge everywhere, in part because of the legitimate injury that I suffered. And they thought, this is truly the most dangerous match in wrestling. So cool. I I mean, anybody goes back and watch it. Just an awesome, unbelievable match. Critically acclaimed. It's just an awesome, awesome match. And you think back about kind of the way that the horsemen are being built up obviously the main guys the main catalyst to speak against the horsemen dusty nikita the road warriors like you said a little bit sprinkling maybe jimmy valiant jimmy ronnie, ronnie yeah. garvin yep, ronnie, sprinkling garvin. Some ronnie garvin yeah you, i mean sprinkling these guys but if you think about it they're kind of almost grooming luger the whole time they they tease that you know that he wants the nwa title then he wins the u.s title from nikita with your help, then you kind of cost him at Starcade 87. You cost him the U.S. title against Dusty. So then they tease it again, and he's mad at you. And then, like you mentioned before, <laughs> with Bunkhouse Stampede, Orange's like, all right, you know, like you said, the eggplant, let's go, let's get out of the ring, you know, <laughs> everybody, everybody, let's go. And he won't do it. And he, he goes, I'll make the right decision. I forget what the exact word, but he basically yeah. goes, when Orange turns back, he's like, I'll make the right decision. And he beats you up, and you're shocked. I mean, it, it, it's so good. Yeah, a handful the, of hair, seat of the pants, and whoo. Yep. <laughs> and the guys on the outside are, what? <laughs> and, I mean, that, God, that, that. And your promos him. after that are great, too. I mean, so good. You're, it's basically Rick, Arn, and Tully in, in, in the back, and they're kind of just, like, stewing and stuff. But you're, it's just you going crazy. Luger, you're thinking about this was my big chance. This is my big win. It was yeah. so well done. The guys all sacrificed themselves for yeah. me. <laughs> I never asked them. I didn't want it. They wanted it for me. And then the more it got closer to happening, wow, I thought, what a special moment. The guys really care about me. They want me to have this moment. And you spoiled it. It, it, was, it was a simple story, but so easy to follow and so easy to talk about on the, on the backside. Yeah. Absolutely. So was Luger always, as soon as he got there, was that somebody that Flair was like, all right, let's groom his him as a contender. He'd be a great contender for the title. Was Dusty saying that? Or was that just kind of assumed? I think that was assumed that when he was coming in, we were going to bring him with us. And then eventually, um, you know, he would go to the other side and then that would be a... Um, you know, that would be the first one that was part of us that now is on the other side and just made him, made Luger, really did. And it was good for us, too. You know, good for business in general. Yeah, it was good all the way around. I think he was the perfect guy. I almost think he is super underrated to a point where he is so believable. As soon as you look at him, like, wow, this guy just looks like a pro wrestler. Such a great body. I think he had, had like 2% body fat or something ridiculous like that. Probably the greatest body ever in the history of wrestling. I know some people might say Warrior or somebody else, but probably the greatest body ever in wrestling. Just yeah. everything about him just clicked. And I feel like almost as, as he started to get more experience, he became a lot better in the ring than people give him credit for yes i agree with you yeah in the beginning we had we definitely had to uh to camouflage his lack of experience and we were over so and and the the theme of the horseman with the other side it it, it with him switching over it he didn't have to do much you know he he you know he could stand there and pose and i i run and ah! <laughs> Oh man! It was, he? Oh god! We laugh now, but it, it, the fans just—they they couldn't get enough of it. Was he kind of a, a pet project of yours? Like, was Dusty kind of pull you off the side? Like, hey, you know, help him with promos or help him with this? Was that a project of yours to really kind of make sure that that he was trained absolutely perfectly? Dusty and I were very close. Dusty was the booker, and I was his assistant. When I, I. I had the, uh, I, ha I, 
I always wanted the book and I always wanted to work for Eddie Graham. And I finally, Jody Hamilton had been there and I finally got the booking job in Florida. And it was a uh, eye-opening experience because I, and I, and I had, I had Eric Embry, I had Charlie Cook. I, I didn't have much of a new, new, and I didn't realize that the great bookers always brought with them, be it Watts or whoever, or Dusty, always had three or four main event guys. When he went in the book, they came in with him. So the whole package had an impact, a positive impact on the territory. I, I, I never realized that. Now I'm in Florida, and I had uh, um, Don Jardine was uh, the the heel, and we just we didn't we didn't explode the business, and it all of a sudden the realization was I can have I can produce a television show, put a great show together, I can book matches, I can do all these things, but I had to. All the other, as I looked around at these other guys that were successful bookers, they all had a, a handful of guys that were quote unquote their guys. That when he went into book, they went in with him. So it was a package deal. I never processed that. Now all of a sudden I'm there, and I think I had Eric Embry as a as a main event guy and Charlie Cook, which is not I'm not disparaging them, but uh, it it. I didn't come in with a with a group of guys around me that were quote unquote established huge stars in the business. And so um I'm trying to think I it was Dory and Terry and they and they he was going to have to bring them in and then the Dory I don't know if it was Terry was going to be the booker, I think, or Dory be the booker or whatever, but they were both coming in. And they told Eddie, because I had worked in Amarillo a couple times and had a great relationship with them. But, and there was no conversation with me, but come to find out, they told Eddie, we'll take over, we'll come in and be the quote unquote bookers, but. JJ stays as part of the uh, part of the team, which was really uh, says a lot about them, and I guess in a way says a lot about the uh, the reputation that I had in the industry and, and the level of respect. And so we came in, and that really popped things. And then they didn't want to move in; they didn't want to leave Texas and move to uh, move to Florida. And so then. Um, Dusty came back from, I don't know where Dusty had been, maybe for a run in New York. And Dusty came in, which popped the thing again. And then Dusty had always wanted the book. And so the folks hadn't moved over there. And so Eddie agreed to, because to, he was going to help, you know, work with Dusty and manage him. And I didn't really have a, a relationship with Dusty, but when Dusty came in, and whether the funks talked to him, I don't know. But Dusty said, I'll come in, but I remain in the same role. And it's Dusty and I. And as, as we kind of bring it back around, kind of bring it back to the Four Horsemen in 1987 and that Lex Luger era of the Four Horsemen, would you give it the thumbs up as far as the transition from Oli <laughs> to Lex? For me, I just thought it was an awesome transition at that time and that period to switch over to Lex and to keep the momentum going and to keep them strong and for war games, everything else. Would you say that the Lex Luger experiment was definitely a good one for the four horsemen? I think we made it work. And the thing with Oli, Oli wanted to go see his son, you know, Mm -hmm. as as an amateur and one of the days off. And then Jimmy said, well, Eddie Graham's finished. Luger's got to leave Florida because he got in a a situation with Brody and it got so bad that Brody beat him up so bad that it really hurt him in the territory and he actually climbed out of the cage and walked out and gone. So he said, uh, Eddie called and so we're going to bring him in here. He's, you know, he's 
got a hell of a body. He's just not doesn't have a wealth of experience, and we can work around him. So that's that's how that all uh, all, all all came about. And and uh, we were able to camouflage Luger, not not put him in situations where you know we exposed the fact that he really wasn't experienced, and it really brought him along. He was very. Uh, very coachable, very, very coachable, and definitely had the size and the look, and we made it work. And as far as the plugs for the show, of course, as we as we wind it down here, a new pro wrestling tea store has been set up where you can pick up a, a J.J. Dillon shirt. Just go to ProWrestlingTees.com and look for I, J.J. Dillon. I haven't Dillon. seen it yet. I'm anxious to see it, too. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I, will, I will forward you everything as far as that. And, of course, a Patreon has been set up where you can now become a patron and support the show. That is Patreon.com. And look for J.J. Dillon on there as well. Of course, J.J.'s website, JJDillon.com. I highly recommend you go on there and get J.J. Dillon's book. Wrestlers are like seagulls from McMahon to McMahon. One of the greatest wrestling books there ever was. Of course, if you want to email us, email your questions in the comments to Podcast at gmail.com. That is Podcast at gmail.com. Of course, as always, you could follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and check out our website, tmptempire.com. Of course, I, and I have, have so, I have some appearances coming up too. Now, yes, we, we will actually be recording this, and it will air on Saturday. What time on Saturday does this air? Six oh five. Okay, well, that you know quite well. Yeah, I will be in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, that day, and it's an all-day fan fest. So, um, by the time I mention that I'm going to be there, it'll be late in the day. And if you weren't already uh, at the fan fest in Cherry Hill. You should come down and, and say hello. And then, of course, the following week, um, I'm looking forward to being back with uh, with both Arn Anderson and Barry Windham in St. Louis for uh, for Herb Simmons. Uh, he's been a promoter there for 40 years, highly respected all around the, the country. And Barry and I are doing a seminar on Saturday, the 2nd of November uh, in St. Louis uh, at 11 in the morning. And then from four to seven, we're going to be doing some meet and greet. And there's actually a, a show that night. So Arn will be there. Barry will be there. I'll be there. And it'll be uh, pretty much of a full blown, uh, horseman reunion. And, uh, a week after, um, I, I'm, I've got a couple things in the fire. One of which is uh, possibly in Baltimore or, uh, Barry Wyndham, I think is putting the finishing touches on a fan fest in Tampa. And because I had my first match with Barry, it looks like uh, I've already had a conversation with Conrad about Baltimore that it looks like I'm probably going to miss that because I'm going to be in uh, Tampa for Saturday the 9th and then uh, going over to Orlando on, on uh, Sunday the 10th. And that's pretty well, pretty well going to eat up the personal appearances for the balance of the year. But uh, I enjoy getting out and uh, meeting the fans and, uh, those that follow have a chance to come up, and I'm interested in your feedback about, you know, most of them, uh, um, uh, I th- I'm thankful, seem to like the show and enjoy the conversation. And they, <clears throat> the one thing that I keep hearing was that when I when I do this show with you, um, I don't have an axe to grind with anybody. And some of the, some of the uh, shows, it's like somebody's feuding with somebody and they're mad at somebody. I've been in the business so long, I never had time to get mad at anybody. I just wanted to, to be a part of it and be a success. And and so I'm very thankful uh, that people gave me the opportunity, and I've always been uh, work, willing to work hard and, um, you know, appreciate everything. So if you see that I'm in your area, uh, come on down and say hello. I, I'd like to meet you in person and, and get your feedback on the show and, any suggestions you may have about, you know, what we could do to make it better? Because we're doing this for you, the fans. And it is awesome you're getting out there doing those appearances. I highly recommend any of those fans out there go see JJ. Definitely, if he's doing a seminar, head to that seminar. And if you are doing that thing with Barry Windham down in Tampa, that's going to be pretty cool because uh, you guys definitely have a lot of history together. So awesome awesome stuff jj and and the one and the one in st louis with herb simmons uh yeah with november 2nd is with arn and barry 
and we were we were doing a uh, uh, a, a clinic and then a meet and greet after be- before the show that night. So that's a uh, a great opportunity to come down. It's uh, you know the, the horsemen are pretty much taking over uh, taking over St. Louis, and that's a, a major town. And uh, Herb Simmons has been promoting for 40 years. He's one of the the premier promoters in the country, very highly respected, and I'm, uh, I'm always honored to be able to go back to St. Louis and work for Herb. The Four Horsemen are as over now as they ever were. I love it. JJ, <laughs> thank you so much uh, for another thank, great episode. And uh, thank you. all the fans, I, join us again next week. Yeah, I've enjoyed this, and, and thank you for, uh, you know, for the research you do, the questions you ask, and for uh, you know, guiding me through this. And uh, I, I like the feedback from the fans. Please take your time to, uh, to send in an email, and if there's something that you don't like, I've, I've always thrived on, on constructive criticism. Tell me something that you would like to change. And if you like the way the format is going, you know, say so. Because we really work hard to try and have a, a, an interesting show every week. And uh, I think we got a good chemistry here. And hopefully we'll be able to do it for a long, long time to come. Absolutely. JJ, thank you. And, uh, We'll enjoy the, or excuse me, we'll see the fans uh, next week, and everybody uh, enjoy your weekend. Look for six oh five for the JJ Dillon podcast. This podcast was a presentation of the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling's Podcast Empire.